0: Welcome to Podcast episode 42. It's hard to believe that we've been doing this for that many times. But here I am, and here you are, and thanks for being here. So, uh, the topic of the day, or the topic of the moment that I want to uh, address here, is um, Eric Schneiderman, the uh, former Attorney General of New York State, who uh, blew up in a, in a Me Too scandal. He was... Um, one of the uh, leaders of the Me Too movement, um, uh, not only a standard-issue liberal but a radical uh, leftist, going after all kinds of people. He a rising star in the um, in the progressive uh, cosmos. So um, it was quite a shock when he uh, when he one day promptly was uh, blew up after he was accused by multiple women of of being abusive in uh, relationships that he had with them now he he denied being abusive that way, but he nevertheless resigned, and the whole thing was um, um, just another and just another gaudy uh, episode in a uh, sort of uh, generally gaudy movement so i want to I want to talk about um, I want to talk about this generically, without saying anything particular about any of the particular accusations. If he's accused and he denies, then he should have the um, uh, the benefit of the presumption of innocence. If the thing goes to court, you want uh, you want a number of people to be able to serve on a journey, uh, jury. Jury, uh, you want people to um, sort of. Uh, Take, take in the information without uh, rushing to conclusions, without rushing to judgment, and so on. So I'm not saying anything about um, the, the credibility of the accusations, although they appear uh, credible enough to indict. Uh, you don't just um, take people into court over any cockamamie accusation. Uh, these seem uh, like credible enough to pursue it further, but when you pursue it further, you have to do so with the presumption of innocence. And so I'm not saying anything um, specific one way or the other about what happened in any of these particular instances. Uh, but I do want to use Eric Schneiderman um, as a as a foil or as someone who is representative of that entire um, movement. Um, and... And if it turns out that he didn't do any of these things, then we can use, uh, we can use someone else for our illustration of the same principle that I want to uh, get at. Uh, the uh, the Me Too movement, for all its moral indignation, for all the. Um, uh, you know that for all the indignation that arises when women come forward and say and that happened to me too and that happened to me too uh, we have a uh we have a movement in tension with itself and here's here's how the movement is in tension with itself when a woman comes forward and says my uh, ex boss molested me or made advances that were unwanted or Uh, I was uh, molested as a child by an uncle or, you know, when she comes forward and makes these charges, she is making these charges as though she were filing the charges in a world with moral absolutes, right? So the charges are made as though absolutes were a thing, as though moral absolutes uh, existed. At the same time, running concurrently with this and down underneath it at the foundation, you have the uh, undeniable fact that the whole Me Too mo- movement, the whole uh, b- the, the part of the country, the part of the population that embraces the Me Too movement is radically relativistic when it comes to ethics, when it comes to sexual ethics, when it comes to abortion uh, ethics, when it comes to transgender ethics. Um, You can do whatever you want to do. You can be whatever you want to be. Now, here's the tension. This is the tension point. You can't adopt a relativistic framework and say, do what you feel, and then under your breath viciously whisper, except for that. If you can do, if if ethics are relative, if there is no God, Uh, imagine there's no heaven, imagine there's no judgment, imagine there's no fixed standard of morality anywhere at any level, Um, there will never be a last judgment, there will never be a final um, reckoning, and you are a very lustful 14-year-old boy, and you've got all these little girl cousins running around, what is wrong with molesting them? Why is that wrong? And you can't make it wrong simply by having one of the girls grow up and denounce what you did very, very fiercely. That's just her. In order for the accusation to have traction, there has to be a source of um, uh, a source of moral authority that overarches the culprit and the victim unless there is a th- unless there is a moral law unless there's a moral code that overarches both the victim and the perpetrator there is no such thing as a victim and there's no such thing as a perpetrator now suppose eric schneiderman knew this suppose eric schneiderman had followed this out reasoned this out to the uh, end of the road and, and was functioning on the basis of an epistemologically self-conscious atheism. There is no God. It doesn't matter. If that's the case, there is no such thing as hypocrisy. Not only is there no such thing as uh, sexual crime or sexual sin, or sexual molestation. There's no such thing as a perpetrator, there's no such thing as a victim. But if there is no God, there's no such thing as a hypocrite. Let me say that again. If Eric Eric Schneiderman's radical leftist vision was one embraced by him, and he denies the existence of God, if we step into that world, we cannot accuse him of hypocrisy. People can say, well, he was saying one thing in public and another thing in private. Well, okay. For a Christian, that's a great sin. For, for a Christian, because there's an authority, because there's an absolute moral authority that governs all of us, and because that absolute moral authority, the triune God of Scripture, tells us that we must not be 2 faced that way. He tells us that we must not live that way he tells us we must not be whited sepulchres we must not be uh, whitewashed tombs we must not we, we must not parade about um, uh, flaunting our piety on the one hand and being full of uh, diseased sins on the inside the absolute God tells us not to do that that means that in the Christian cosmos hypocrisy is a sin in the Christian cosmos, hypocrisy is a very grievous sin. In in the Me Too world, in the relativistic Me Too world, there's no such thing as sin. If there is no such thing as sin, there cannot be the sin of molestation, or the sin of rape, or the sin of victimizing, or the sin of hypocrisy. You cannot banish the the concept of sin and then whistle it back up when you need it for a PR campaign. All right. So, um, the someone's going to say, "Yeah, but it still it doesn't it doesn't um, go down well with the public when you are found to be radically inconsistent, saying saying one thing, you know, in public and saying another, uh, doing another in private." Yes, but that's because the public, which judges hypocrisy as a vile thing, is still is, is still in possession of the moral capital that they inherited from the Christian faith. If we are to be secularists, we have to be secularists all the way down. If we're to be secularists, if we are to function as though there is no God, then we have to be able to follow that argument where wherever it is. Leads, And for the Me Too world, for the, for the leftist world, for the secularist world, for the, the world that is, that is uh, getting a lot of traction by denouncing the patriarchy, uh, we need to make them step up to and embrace and, um, and live consistently with their own standard there's no such thing as hypocrisy. There's no such thing as contradiction. There's no such thing as radical inconsistency. And so, um, if, if the Me Too world is correct, if the, Me Too, if the Me Too cosmos is correct, there's no such thing as being a hypocrite. And Eric Schneiderman is fine. So our book re- our book review um, for uh, episode forty two is a review of Reformation worship. Now this is a book um, that it's this is a big doorstop of a book and it's uh, both a book to read through and a, and a book to have on your desk as a resource. Uh, I have not read th- through it yet, but it is on my desk as a resource, and I'm in the process of reading. Through it, and I've read enough of it to be able to commend it to you. Reformation worship—it's uh, put together by Gibson and Eernisse. Um, this is a fabulous research, uh, and it—it's it, it, a fabulous excuse me—a fabulous resource on uh, reformational liturgics. Um, the Reformation was not only a doctrinal Reformation, not only a cultural. Uh, Reformation, not only a musical Reformation, but the Reformation was also a liturgical Reformation. And the Reformation of liturgy, the Reformation of worship, was right at the center of what the Reformers were about. And and what uh, Gibson and Ernie have have done here is they have assembled uh, some of the classic Reformed orders of worship. Uh, they have... Uh, Provided them with fresh translations, or uh, they've cleaned. If if it was originally in English, they've um, um, modernized it, sandpapered it very nicely, and put the whole thing uh, together in one easily accessible volume. So if you want to, if you want to see what Cranmer uh, did in this place, or what Bootser did, or what Calvin. Uh, did or what Luther did uh, this is a this is this book is just um, a, a godsend um, it's um, oh I, I was going to write down the um, press I think it's new growth press uh, so if you're if it's it's on Amazon Reformation worship Gibson and ergie and it's a fabulous uh, resource for those who want to go uh, if those who want to go into the uh, the archives, if you will, of the Reformation and see what our uh, Reformed fathers did as they Reformed worship to bring it into closer conformity with the Word of God, uh, which is a task that we need to undertake today. We've drifted off in a different direction than the medieval uh, church had done, but it's a different direction that that is uh, uh, sometimes problematic in the same uh, sort of way, one of uh, in the same sort of ways. Uh, so, f- for example, one uh, example of this overlap is uh, Reformational worship in involves the entire congregation. the The whole congregation is a worshiping organism, with the minister up front and the people, you know, representing God to the people and representing the people to God, and. He speaks for God, and the people respond as the people, and it's a it it's a dynamic, active, um, uh, it's a dynamic activity involving everybody, as opposed to uh, the spectator approach to worship, which was unfortunately uh, something that happened in the Middle Ages and something that's happening again. Um, uh, some conservative Protestant churches, it's like going to a lecture or a lecture hall, and you just sit there and listen. Uh, in in more contemporary worship, it's like going to a concert or a nightclub, and you go uh, just sit there and be entertained. But you're not, you're not an active participant in anything. In Reformation worship, that's not the case. And um, I think that—I'm uh, not saying that any pastor, Reformed pastor, uh, who doesn't have this book should— Sell their firstborn son in order to get it, but you know that would be that'd be against the law of God. That would not be a good thing. But I I can tell you that you need to get it. This needs to this needs to go on your list. Reformation Worship Gibson and Ernie. God. God and we come to this next segment in. Um, our study of hamartiology, the study of sin, let's start with this um, this word amathes. The word amathes means unlearned, and it's used once in the New Testament, so it's just a one-time use. Amathes, and it means ignorant or unlearned. Peter is talking about how the apostle Paul is sometimes difficult to understand. This means Peter says that there are things in his letters which unstable and unlearned people twist to their own destruction. This is in 2 Peter 3.16. So that's the word there, unstable and unlearned. The unlearned is amathes. Now, uh, this is under a study of sin, and ignorance is not necessarily sin. So although the word could be translated as ignorant, the problem is obviously not with being ignorant or unlearned in itself. A toddler, for example, is unlearned, but, un- unlearned but, but a toddler is not supposed to be learned. Those who are ignorant but have no opportunity for learning are not to be condemned. But those who are unlearned and yet gather to themselves the prerogatives of learning, which would include the authority to interpret the letters of Paul, are demonstrating that they are unlearned for a reason. They are unstable souls and their ignorance is sinful. So what we have is uh, the, a distinction to be made between ignorance that is culpable, culpable ignorance, and innocent ignorance. Innocent ignorance would be we'd call it something like uh, naivete or 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 you know fresh or young or immature. Um, when you bring your baby home from the hospital, that you don't two days later you don't upbraid him for being. Uh, so slow in the uptake um, he's he's ignorant, but he's supposed to be ignorant he's he's ignorant, but he's a baby that's the, that's a design feature that's a feature uh not a bug but if um if it's twenty years later and he doesn't know any more about the subject than he did when he was first home from the hospital, despite having been presented with the truth of God's word many times multiple times over. Now, that's a culpable ignorance. And that kind of person is the kind of person who's going to twist um, uh, the letters of Paul, not to mention other uh, portions of Scripture. You've spent a pleasant two. half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.